very often, I think, in business, we look at, as we've said, you know, you've got an organisation that is the biggest, that is the best shoemaker in the world for a period of time. Maybe it's 10 years. And they are the fittest shoemaker for that decade. But actually, it's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of those that can adapt the best to the next change. This is the strategy behind with Adam Cox, Yuta Tobias Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind adapting to the uncontrollable. What does it take to not just survive, but thrive during times of externally imposed crisis? Adapting to the uncontrollable is something that leaders are really starting to struggle with because leaders like to control things. It comes with their job title. It comes with their perception of power. It comes with the expectation of those who they're leading that, look, you know, the reason why you're here is to give us certainty and control so we can actually start doing good things and, and running forward. However, in times of heightened uncontrollability, a lot of leaders start to seize up. A lot of leaders start to panic. Now, they might necessarily show it, but there is this case where heightened uncontrollability, heightened uncertainty, heightened volatility throw people through a bit of a loop. And what we're going to be discussing today is the different perspectives of how to get beneath the leadership behavior of adapting to the uncontrollable. So I would like to start with this. I read a paper that unfortunately I cannot recall, so therefore this might be of no value, but I swear <laughs> to God I read it. And the correlation was this. When there is less control, leaders will go looking for data. And in the rise of big data in the last you know, 8, 10, 12 years, when leaders get their hands on this data, there is an inverse correlation that more data doesn't lead to more controllability and that coming out in better decisions or decisions at all being made. It's this kind of, oh, what's going on here? So I would like to throw this to Matt and almost from kind of the scientific nature of what I'm putting forward of this piece of research is that more data doesn't lead to better decisions. What's actually going on here? Why do you think there's this inverse correlation between when things are uncontrollable, people look for data, they get the data, but it doesn't actually really help? What are your thoughts? Well, there's so much to unpack there. I'm glad that we've got more than an hour to do it today. Um, <laughs> but where but where I'd like to start is with probably one of my favorite quotes from a gentleman called Viktor Frankl. Um, he said, when we're no longer able to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. Um, and, and I think in that, when you start looking to to find, you know, you start trying to collect data, I think often you're... Uh, the the tendency is to try to find data that will support a scenario where you can leave the organization you're leading unchanged or as minimally changed as possible you know unconsciously you don't want to have to admit that 
uh, if you're in retail, for example, you don't want to have to admit that you're going to have to shutter all of your high street stores because e-commerce is the only route forward. Now, that, that's a blanket statement that is probably not exactly true. But over the last three months, we've found many places where that has been at least temporarily true. And I think one of the biggest things we have to look at is, is that change, um, is it is it prompt? Is it abrupt? So, it, you know, is it is it the sort of scenario where you've got a meteorite hitting the earth and wiping out dinosaurs where only the mammals can survive? Or is it something that happens slowly over time where you can move, where a species could move to a different state and still survive? So during the pandemic, you've seen all of a sudden instant changes that have absolutely crippled organizations' abilities to survive. Um, because the one key thing that they've needed to survive is cash flow. And if they haven't had the ability to generate cash, it doesn't matter how good a strategy they've got. If their if their assumption of we will be able to you know bring cash into within these boundaries every month, if that's taken away, the lifeblood of the company disappears, and they they're not they're not able to survive through that first shock to then go on and adapt and thrive. So I think the first thing is 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 the, the is is an organization and a leader able to maintain the organization through that first initial shock the second part then in in evolutionary theory really comes down to the fact that adaptation is the is the biological mechanisms by which organisms uh, adjust to a new environment so we've got new environments around us right now and they're rapidly changing we've had a big shock to the environment similar in many cases to uh, the meteor that that hit the earth thousands and thousands of years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs um, and in many respects the dinosaurs of retail are the ones that are becoming extinct and what's being left are the the more digital mammals that that were able to to actually survive and thrive in this and you're looking at smaller shops that were maybe working from home, working from smaller places that didn't need to have as much infrastructure, didn't have as high a cost. And though that that, that that ability to be more agile um, with the cost base, with the you know the human resources, I think is one of the key things that's looking at how organizations can survive and thrive through those through those shocks. Um, and if we then take that to a sort of the key drivers of sort of the key way the key the three key ways that um organize you know, organisms survive it's either they make structural changes so they change actually you know where are the eyes on their heads in fact maybe where are they uh you know you know to, do they do they stand upright um you've then got behavioral changes so how do we behave as as, as you know how do the individual um organisms behave so do they all of a sudden you know when roads come through do they all of a sudden congregate on the roads and get run over or do they hide from the the roads um and then you've got the physiological changes as well um you know if we look at human beings just as an example over the last ten thousand years or so we've evolved to to stand upright we've developed teeth that can um support both meat you know that can eat both meat and grains um, we've got the ability to uh, to sweat to keep ourselves cool. We've actually developed hearing that's very, very specialised within that, that's 
been particularly helpful to allow us to communicate. So much more so than other other mammals. Um, and, you know, we've also learned to be able to travel great distances on foot. Now, it's, that's a skill we've lost. We're losing in many perspectives. Um, but that ability to, you know, to, you know, endurance running is one of those things that we've evolved to do. So we may never have been the quickest animal, but we could track animals for days and we'd wait till we'd wear them out and then we'd be able to kill them for food. And I think if we look at those sorts of adaptations, we're going to see over the next period as we start looking at the impacts of these shocks, what are the things that were just uh, meteorites and kind of the that just wipe thing, you know, wipe dinosaurs out? And then what are the um, what are the unconscious adaptations that organisations will need to make to survive? Uh, some of those can be very consciously planned, and I think others will. Mm-hmm kind of formed by some sort of serendipity and i guess to throw it to to yutta there's got to be a level of mindfulness here as to how do you recognize can you recognize um the different changes that you need to make both in uh, within the people and within the uh, the organization and the customer bases yeah i uh, matt i love how you talk about digital mammals that is really fascinating to me that the digital mammals the digitally literate the connected mammals will survive because they're the ones that adapt that are flexible that are um agile as you say and i agree that well i would say that wouldn't i that mindfulness as the ability to to make space so is key in adapting. So if we if we now break down, right? So what we're saying is we would like for people to learn how to adapt better, don't we, Adam, as well? We would like for people to be more agile and more flexible and not hang on to the sense of control. So let's treat that as the outcome of what we want to talk about. And now, how do we get there? And maybe I'm backtracking even further to say, why is it so hard to embrace adapting? Why is it so hard to become a digital mammal? And I love how you're talking about evolution, Matt, because I'd like to bring in Darwin. Darwin, in 1872, 100 years before I was born, wrote a book called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. And I think that's completely under-discussed and really super important to adaptation and to what we're talking about. It is not only the expression, but also the discussion and the acknowledgement of emotion. And I say this, and I'm just about to throw the ball back to you, Adam. I say this because what's behind not wanting to adapt, what's behind not wanting to give away the control that you've talked about at the beginning, it's fear. And it's Mm -hmm. not allowing fear to be here And to look it in the eye, look the fear in the eye and see, notice what is there. Because if I am able to sit with the fear, I might actually be able to learn something that I haven't seen before. And that might help me adapt and open up. But that's hard, Mm. isn't it, Adam? Yes, it is. It kind of goes back yet again. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. 
And it's, you know, if you have the opportunity to sit with the fear or mm. the discomfort. And yeah, look, you're absolutely right. As I think about it, it all does kind of lead back to fear of the unknown, particularly when stakes are high and everyone is looking to you for guidance based in moments of, uh, you know, reduced control and, you know, and high volatility. Can I just say one more thing while you're thinking? Yeah, sure. Go I mentioned it. Darwin because Darwin said, Feelings are highly functional. Emotions are highly functional. We have adapted because emotions are something that guide behavior. But mm. in the last 100 years or so, 100, almost 50 years or so, we've successively become less attuned to reading emotions for what they are because they're signals. They're signals for action. And fear is actually, if we are able to look at it, quite a useful emotion to have because it means I'm alert and it means I need to do something maybe differently so that I get yep. out of the spot I'm in. But if I suppress the fear and don't allow it to be expressed as actually Darwin, I think in, in what he wrote about, wanted us to do, I have no opportunity to actually respond in the right way and to notice what I need to notice so that I mm. have less fear. So I'd like to talk mm. about mentionable and man manageable. That's what, what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you keep two, saying, Adam. Yeah, two things. Two things are lunging forward. One hideously unrelated, so I'll get that out. Okay. It reminds me yeah. of a story I heard that where Charles Darwin was trying to understand the emotional relationship in animals and humans, mm -hmm. and he was trying to go after embarrassment because when humans are embarrassed, they will blush. And he was apparently is trying to see can he get animals to blush, and he shaved a dog to try to see what would happen in the to pigment the of the skin. Yeah. I'm like, this poor dog. Anyway, so when you said Charles Darwin and that piece of research, I'm like, did he really shave a dog? Because you, you'll probably know this better than I will. Because if you did, I'm like, where's the dog? Secondly, and subsequently more More, more relatedly. <laughs> more, exactly. More, more help. Yeah, okay. Yeah, incrementally more valuable. <laughs> um, is the component of risk. And what I'm doing is I'm now translating your point of fear mm -hmm. and I'm putting it into something that can be contextualized for a leader to actually start to edge it towards control. And that would be risk. I am consumed with fear. What am I fearful of? Yeah. This. This thing that I can't control. Okay, so that is an uncontrollable. The other side of the coin is understanding what is controllable in times of uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. And that is the dark art of risk mitigation. Yeah. That is definitely the dark art of scenario planning. It is the dark art of understanding optionality when uncontrollable events hit us. And you can see, particularly during the last kind of, you know, three months and what will happen into the next probably 12, 18 months, is you'll see the organizations who do that well. And they're already there and they take it in their stride and they're like, you know what? We have used this opportunity to own the controllable and be more ambitious with the controllable because if we as leaders are seen as grabbing the controllable elements of what's going on and doing ambitious, good work with those things, it starts to permeate to others who this individual or this, you know, these leaders are leading that, you know what, we actually can do something. Mm -hmm. 
And it's it reminds me, in uh, I saw this thing in child psychology years ago, is that during moments of crisis, like, you know, where there's a national tragedy, whatever it happens to be, and young children, when they're seeing this on the news and they're trying to understand what's actually going on, one of the best things you can do as a parent or as an adult is sit with the young child, you know, talk through it, get them to express what they're feeling. And then when they get to that point of conflict and they can't understand why these things are happening, the instruction I've heard is when you look at the images, always look for the person who is trying to help. You see people in the street, they're mm-hmm. trying to help. Meanwhile, you know, they're showing, mm-hmm. you know, the riots, but look at the protests and why they're doing it. You see, you know, I remember there was a big thing in relation to the JFK assassination. Again, Fred Rogers comes in and goes, okay, so how do we get it to a point where we can make this a discussable, a mentionable mm-hmm. fact? And it's focusing on the optimism. So as a leader, you know, you're on the payroll to give optimism to those you are leading because in many organizations, culture is a reflection of the leadership. Mm-hmm. If I'm a meathead kind of, you know, rule with a stick, this is how we do it, then I'm going to create a very aggressive, combative culture. And then when uncertainty hits, you're just going to permeate more aggression and combativeness. Whereas actually understanding and being self-aware enough to Matt's question to you, Yuta, in relation to what's what's the mindfulness kind of piece mm. of this. Mm. There's definitely a piece there that can lead to, you know, I think that they really need to practice what they preach. They really need to walk it and talk it if they're serious about leading through uncontrollable times. I think you're, you're absolutely spot on and you've given a really practical instruction for people who are listening as to how to do this and there's a twist to it. So the practical instruction that I'm hearing for people who are interested in learning how to control the uncontrollable or adapt to what's uncontrollable is to shift their attention on things that you might not see at first glance, right? So you focus your attention on your attention on that that is helpful or the person that is trying to help or the aspect of the situation that you haven't quite seen. So that's an, a mindfulness activity where we're saying we actually are in control over where we are focusing our attention on in any moment. We could focus our attention on the stuff that's difficult, the stuff that is almost numbing. We could also mm-hmm. focus our attention on something that might have not been talked about enough that might be actually helpful and it's our role as leaders to uncover it. And there's something really important about this. Mindfulness is about noticing and being in the presence of all that is there and subsequently make a decision as opposed to judging in the moment immediately in a knee-jerk kind of way. And if we are applying the instruction that you've just given us in a mindless way and say, let's focus on the positive aspects of the crisis. Let's focus on the positive aspects of racism being discussed. We might actually not be fully present to all that's there because we might actually indirectly um, quash down the need for people to mourn, the need for people to express their fear. So when you were talking about child therapy and and how to help children and make sense of something that's big and national and and important. Allowing children to speak about what is there is a bit equivalent to a leader in an organization 
allowing people to express what is real, even though it might be uncomfortable, even though we might not have an answer, before we can then move on to say, hold on, we haven't even seen all the good stuff here. Because if we don't mm -hmm. do that, if we don't follow that step, people smell that it's actually yeah. a phony attempt to suppress and to, again, yeah. do the stuff that you and I are lamenting people to do, to, to be courageous in the face of what's actually real. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, you know, I still think that there's two, there's two steps to this. There's yep. the initial survival phase. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to, to what, what you were both saying about fear, um, biologically, we are programmed in fear to, to fight or flight. Um, and in many cases, we can be uh, in the in the modern world that both of those instincts could be wrong because mm -hmm. we in a sense of the physical manifestation of fear will be to either run away or to fight get cross and this is a physical manifestation of you know a, a pandemic and the impact of that is something that neither of those responses is going to solve and so we actually have to look quite deep inside ourselves and look at well what actually is our response and what is the appropriate response to that? Because our initial fight or flight instincts, I think, are, uh, are quite difficult. And so I think that there's a very, um, shall we say, pra pragmatic approach needed um, at the beginning of this to ensure that an organization, a culture can survive the first shockwave, whether that's by making some decisions to... Uh, whatever they are to to maintain cash flow to maintain the organization maintain the people that are vital for its for the organization to continue um, and then I think it's about building a a structure that enables the organization to to, to thrive it within the new environment and I think often I've seen it that leaders feel it's solely their responsibility to find that. But I think that's where you see agile organizations pushing that innovation to the people that are living the reality as well. And so you start seeing, well, how else can we adapt to this? What else is out there? What other needs are there for these, you know, for whatever, you know, goods or services we sell? And so I think if you can take that, that innovation mindset once you've put up the, the survival once you put survival in for a period of time you know that you can do that and then it's about creating a an innovation mindset through the organization mindful of the challenges that each of those people uh, your people are going to be facing i mean you know in, in the in the first instance this is a a biological threat and we've talked about this before it's a biological threat wrapped up in a, an environmental you know mega trend plus an economic potential disaster across around the world we could have food shortages coming through in certain places in the world there's a whole host of things going on but a lot of people are overlooking the fact that there's there's quite a big mental issue you know mental health challenge as well within staff within customers um, the, all of those things, all of those items need to be addressed some way. And a single person can't possibly think of all of those ideas or a single leadership team can't. 
identify all of those. So for me, it's really about creating innovation teams, creating ways to to listen, to to ideate, um, and let people start to feel that they also have a little bit of control in setting the future, even if their ideas don't make it through the, the through any stage gate process. It's about allowing people to feel they're part of the next phase. I, so that's at least what I think. I am. Uh, can you see me jumping up and down? I'm like so jumping up and down. Um, I've just written down, Matt, your distinction and your, you know, practical instruction of how to, how are we going to get to adapt? How are we going to be adaptive? First, we have to have a survival mindset and then we have to have an innovation mindset. And I think the sequence is really important because for us to talk about innovation and learning and actually adapting without addressing this quite counterproductive but hardwired response that we all have had in response to the pandemic, all have whenever we're faced with something big black swan out of the blue hitting us, it is to fight or flight. And so let's address this one first, right, before we're going to talk about innovation mindset. Adam, are you okay about that? I'm on board. Let's, let's keep on breaking it really practically down. So if we are saying that we need to calm the animal inside us that, is, that wants to either hit somebody or that wants to just run away, and we know intellectually that that's the wrong response, that means we need to do some, some soothing. And most people think mindfulness is all about stress reduction. It's just the first like warm-up exercise, but... In this case, it really, really works. So can we talk about a couple of things that people can do and that they really should be doing whenever they're feeling like, I can't even survive this. I, I don't even have the survival mindset that Matt is talking about. What we're doing, and I think what we should do this, we should do this in a, in a couple of seconds right now. Mm -hmm. What you do when people are in an acute state of fight or flight, stress, sympathetic nervous system uh, autonomic nervous system arousal is we get them to focus on their five senses come to their senses physically and you guys can do that now there's one technique called five four three two one five senses five activities focus with me right now on five things you can feel in your body right now count them up silently something you can ting feel tingling Something you can notice in your body that is moving, your breath. Something that you can notice, maybe there's a weight somewhere you can feel. Something you can be in contact with that you can focus on. Something else that you're feeling in your body. It could be a tension somewhere in your neck. Moving on. Four things you can hear. Focus on four things you can notice. Can notice my my voice. You might notice some other sound in your environment surrounding you. Four things that your ears can hear. <laughs> I've heard one. My dog's quiet right now. Moving on. Three things that you can see. Clock. Three colors that are in your environment. I'm focusing on three red things I can see straight away. Two things you can smell. 
or the absence of smelling something. One thing you can taste. Bingo. Done. Anything different in how you're feeling? Centered is probably the word. It's almost like a reset. It's a reset button. Which, which is fascinating because in times of limited control or even perceived limited control, what you've done is that you've reset the things that are in your control, which are the the reaction to your sensory inputs. Yeah, it's the animal inside us. Mm. So, so I'm racing in my head, but I actually need to be a bit more centered too. But Matt, I think I need to speak to you, right? So how does that help for you to break down the survivor mindset that you've just been talking about? How might something like that help? Well, I think if you've, you're able to to build a um, a space between um, input and response, you're able to select the response better. Um, we we very often look at the world around us as the things that are you know the th- we are very often perceive the things that are important to us as. You know, maybe it's the car, maybe it's the house, maybe it's the the numbers in the bank balance, whatever those things are that are important to us. You know, it might be the the number of handbags you have, or then the pairs of shoes, or whatever it is. There are things that we all have important, and there's nothing wrong with that. But actually, when you come down to it, all of those things can be replaced. The only thing that can't be is yourself and your loved ones. And when you when you really dial back in through that mindfulness, really focusing on your sensations, for me, it allow I think it allows you to to reset what is important to a degree. And when you're looking at that, I, th- I think that's why. When I mean, I certainly observe this. I don't have the research to prove it, but as you saw the pandemic and lockdown happening, all of a sudden there seemed to be a lot more gratitude and a lot more kindness in society. Mm where people started to appreciate the things that people were doing for them more. And I think there's been a stark return, and again, anecdotal evidence only, that as we've started moving out through this and people have started to have time on their hands to fester, they've had time to start seeing financial impact of maybe being furloughed or made redundant, not being able to earn money. Those things build up again, and all of a sudden that initial impact of kindness, gratitude, Mm -hmm. Um, those have started to ebb away in some cases. There have been other things as well that have been going on in the world that have added to the tension. And I, you know, I don't think we should necessarily head to all of those right now. But if we can recognize that you can take everything from somebody apart from the attitude with which you face the next challenge, that, that really is, I think, really, really important for, for leaders because mm-hmm. There are those uncontrollable black swan events that will destroy an organization. You know, if you have a high fixed cost basis where you cannot, you know, you you have no control over what's going to be, you know, your obligations to pay. And all of a sudden you end up in, you know, with sky high rents to pay and no footfall in your shops and no ability to turn things over. That, That is a black swan event. But if you can treat the people around you in the right way, 
there is there is an opportunity there at least to for something to survive out of it, even if that is only the self respect of the individuals. Mm. Oh, this is good. Okay, and, and that then allows the next level of adaptation because we seem mm. to think that there is a God given right for organisations to survive. It's been here <laughs> for a hundred and fifty years. This car company's been here. We've got to bail it out. We've got to bail out the banks. No, we haven't. Human, you know, uh, human history existed before any of these organisations started, and it will exist long after they they disappear. You know, in two hundred years' time, will anybody remember Microsoft or Apple or Amazon? We don't know. It might be that SpaceX rules the world by then, or they may just be a blip in you know in in, in a history that that's 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 rewritten but the the one thing that people will remember is how we react to it if we are remembered at all yeah okay can i jump in Mm. yep go for it the thing that speaks to me in my mind as i'm listening to you matt is that we can do all these things in two modes we can do them based on either even we're, we're either aware of it or we're not aware of it based on fear And if we don't really deal with fear properly, it could go in all sorts of dysfunctional ways. We become defensive, we can become protective of an outdated mode of being that we're just so attached to because we're so afraid of changing that we might do all sorts of dysfunctional things that actually paradoxically get us to be blown and overtaken by others even more. Or we can do things out of, I'm going to hit you with the L word, out of love out of connection, out of feeling centered, out of feeling there is there is goodness, there is calmness. Calm or fear, let's let's call it like that. The problem with not addressing any of these problems, um, when we're not in the car in a calm physical state of mind, when our brain and our body are not calm, we're burning through the adrenaline. And the adrenaline is designed to get us to run or to use our, our biceps, right? It's, it, the adrenaline is taking blood flow away from the neocortex into our extremities. And it's only designing, it's designed to do physical stuff. And I find that really fascinating that you say we are all in a fight or flight mode right now, but that's the least useful thing right now because we're all still cooped up. And none of us are able to actually do much physical stuff, especially with competitors or anybody else right now. And so, therefore, we need to absolutely actively shift into a mode that that tunes down fear and that tunes up feeling connected and that tunes up feeling centered. And that's the stuff that you do with these relaxation exercises. And therefore, I'm saying there's a there's a role for calming ourselves down like little animals that are frightened like little mice. And because it releases oxytocin, which is super helpful for us to feel connected, it's super helpful for us to actually get blood flow going in neocortal areas that where it needs to be going. And in the absence of doing this the natural way that we're designed, women generate oxytocin when they lactate can't always do that. Men generate lots of oxytocin, by the way, um, mostly when they have sex. So 
men release oxytocin tons as well when they actually make love, as, as it were, right, rather than war. But you can also release oxytocin by literally doing exercises that get you to get in touch with your five senses. And it helps us feel better. It, ha it has cancer-reducing qualities. It actually gets us to age less quickly. It's fascinating. Ah, and that's why. But that opens up us being interested and being, you know, actually looking at what's in front of us without having this fear monster at mm. the back of us. Because it's actually fascinating. If we were to get people to be fascinated, and the definition of fascination is paying attention without judgment, then we're moving in to your next step, which is to have an innovation, innovation mindset. But let's not skimp on the first step. The first step is to calm the animal and mm. lower the fight or flight response so that we can then move into innovation. Mm. Adam, you need to speak. Oh, can I, can I just add ah, something yeah, go, go, on oxytocin go. before <laughs> I throw it to Adam? Yeah. Because I think that there's, there's a beautiful piece here as well that, 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 that segues between the two because oxytocin also, I mean, it's an amazing hormone. Um, we should uh, make it, it, make, make it available for people to have sex much more often. Perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it should probably so be easy. on diffusers in offices. Because it can <laughs> you just repurpose the lunch break. Um, Maybe. It can help, it, Sorry, Matt. It, it, can, it can help build trust between people, um, and which is absolutely crucial for innovation, for people to be able to have fun playing with their ideation as part of, a, a, a part of an innovation yeah. mindset. Um, and it can also be leveraged by storytelling and human connection. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we've had in lockdown is where very often we've not had that human connect, that, 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 that ability to come together face to face and tell stories around a campfire. And that automatic response to that has been taken away. So we've had to do it. We've had to try to gain that connection through meetings like this. Yet we, we're all tens, hundreds of miles away. Could be in different countries as some of these have been, you know, have been recorded. And I think that that's another really important thing that, that just before we I pass the mm -hmm. ball to, to Adam, just adding that in about that trust. And we've, you know, we've seen, we've talked about it before that trust in project teams is the most critical factor for, for innovation. Yeah, mm. I love this. And so, Adam, over to you. Before, sorry for stealing your line like that. <laughs> no, no, there's no light of light. It's it makes so much sense. Yeah, it makes so much yeah. sense. So <laughs> my whole body senses that what you're saying, Adam, uh, Matt, makes sense. Sorry, Adam. Uh, um, mm. And that's what we're, the state that we need to get to, to be fully here, to, to arrive in the moment so that we are ready for innovation and storytelling and sharing if we don't have access to sex, right, or lactation, <laughs> is a really good strategy to get, and it makes sense to me, to get to this innovation mindset. Adam, I promise you I'm letting you speak now. <laughs> Not a problem. This is great. This is fascinating. I literally now have too much in my head. <laughs> I'm like, okay. This is fascinating, and I'm going to talk my way into it from as far back as I can possibly get. Go. I'm a chief executive. I can't make payroll. I'm not interested in any of this. This is all very good, but 
I'm up against the wall of things I cannot control. Counting five things, like you know, innovate my way out. All of these things make sense of things to do individually within the person. What comes out of my mouth to the tens of thousands of black-eyed staff who know that Friday's coming is the stability component that you were both talking to. There is a component that needs to come first. So the fight or flight, I would actually tend to say that stabilizing an organization or, you know, whatever the leader is leading is a fight attribute. I have to fight to at least adapt to a point of basic survival because the other option is handing in your keys to the bank manager and be like, I'm out. And that's the flight example. And, you know, we've all lived through our fair share of recessions and GFCs and dot-com booms and 87 and all of this. And there are many stories of people just dropping the keys going, this is too hard. And this, to your point, Matt, about why why is there a God-given right that the organization must survive? I am 100% in that boat. Because you know, there is a time and a place for everything, and thus is evolution. And organizations, some are very good at evolving, others are not. And corporate history is littered with thousands of examples of the ones who are not. And the ones who have not survived historically have been because they believe something about themselves or their market or their competitors that is simply not true. Hmm. You know, we're the best shoe manufacturer in the world. Yeah, okay, great. Go back 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years. There'll be a different brand beside each of those, but each of those always thought that they were the best and the t their time came and went. And to this evolution or this um this innovation element, Matt, that you are speaking of, that needs to be proactively baked in as a constant, not just in points in, you know, in times of crisis. Um, you know, the obvious one that comes to mind is I remember when uh, Toyota made the first serious move into hybrid vehicles. And everyone was looking and going, oh, we're going to do this. Uh, and, you know, I remember when I first, you know, saw the, the Toyota hybrids come through and everyone was like, yeah, you know, who's going to drive this? This doesn't make sense for the current environment. But they made the move. And then you have your, you know, your laggers. Oh, we better do this. And, you know, Ford were eventually got on, but they, you know, they threw a lot of money at it, but never caught up. And it's the same in so many industries where you have this disruption, fundamental, it's not disruption, it's, an, it's a fundamental tectonic shift to what's actually happening. And you can either be a part of it or not, or you can kind of put your toe in, but if you're putting your toe in, it, uh, you're just prolonging the inevitable. You know, all of the things, at least where my mind is going, is once you get past survival mode, in the conversation of what is controllable, the value comes when you look, look longer term. Survival is shorter term. I've got to pay the rent. I've got to make payroll. I've got to do all these things. These are short-term operational realities. Once you stabilize that, if you can stabilize that, 
then it goes to the controllable and the value that comes into the conversation that particularly both of you have been having for a little bit now has been one around a purpose that is big enough for everyone to rally around. I've heard things about decentralized decision-making, which is a natural opposite. When the shit hits the fan, most leaders will bring decision-making in to be like, they don't know what they're doing. We're privileged to better information. We're going to be driving the bus. Whereas what we're actually doing here, it goes back to trust. And again, Yuta, your point about love, like love is the right word. Definition of love is the ongoing willingness to care. And if you have an organization that has the ongoing willingness to care, let them do it. If the leadership has stopped the ship from rocking, great. Now what are we going to do? Yes, there must be process. Yes, there must be stage and gate. Yes, there must be, you know, all the, you know, process slash bureaucracy slash whatever we want to call it, because it can't be chaos theory or else in seven years, someone's going to do an evaluation, a a review of the portfolio and go, how the hell did we end up here? We've got, you know, systems going in different directions. We have products pulling in different directions. You know, we we, were just, you know, a nine headed monster and they're a lot harder to control. Because then the next problem you have is go, okay, well, what do I kill? As you know, the new leader comes in, he or she wants, you know, first 90 days, I want to do all these things, great. But then you have the political dynamics and then you end up with this bastard child of an organization that has tried to survive, has survived, but has become something it was never meant to be. So the coherence around innovation, you need to corral the innovation in a particular direction, you need to put like barriers on it. So define where is the terrain that we're looking to innovate in? This is the terrain we're definitely not touching and making sure that it's focused because in uncontrollable times, I think when you look for control and if we're decentralizing control through, you know, the ongoing willingness to care and leveraging the common good and all these wonderful things, we need to be focused. And a lot of people, when they're looking for control, they will take control wherever they can find it. And that's not necessarily correct. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. to be focused we need to get on with business when we're in a crisis situation right we have an uncontrollable situation here we need to adapt i have no time for um you know love care calm i have only time to focus on the next important thing with my ten thousand people who are who depend on me um the, the really inconvenient truth about, you know, us needing to focus, needing to control what is controllable out of a mode of being that is based on fear that I don't acknowledge and that I have no time for only gets more fear-based, only gets more uncontrollable. And it's a paradox. Hence what Matt was saying about focusing on survival and on 
calm energy first before we can control what's controllable is inconvenient but true. And so when your CEO who says, I don't have time for this calming down exercise stuff, for this definition of love, because I have 10,000 people that depend on me and I have to get it done, Adam. I have to get this thing to working. That energy is yucky. That energy is the opposite of attractive and the opposite of fascinating. Because where we need to get to is by learning to control what's controllable. I need to find everything in my view fascinating. So my instruction that I first had in my head um, about the innovation mindset was to be fascinated with everything that is here uncontrollable and paradoxically then maybe something will become controllable but I'm backtracking a little bit more and saying actually you need to be fascinating in the definition of being attractive as a leader and how does a leader become attractive in a crisis by being calm by being somebody that is lovable because I am attracted and I find people fascinating that are calm in the face of a storm. And I find people repulsive and yucky and not worthy of me following when they just are anxious and when they are saying, we need to focus on this. You need to put out that fire because this fire is too big and I have no time to listen to you. So it's inconvenient, but actually allowing ourselves to be, to arrive in the moment is necessary to even start to focus on controlling innovation or even seeing where the opportunities are, because there are opportunities in uncontrollable mm. situations. Because by the way, guys, the word uncontrollable is a judgment. And in mindfulness, we're saying, look before you judge. Mm. And you guys know that uncontrollable situations actually are never completely uncontrollable. If we are actually allowing ourselves to arrive. Well, that's that's fascinating because from a leadership perspective, remember there was a big piece of work done a couple of years ago and they were looking at why organizations basically hit the skids. And all these interviews were done. It was published in HBR and there's a book about it. And in a nutshell, they were interviewing all these executives and CFOs and going through all the financials and they're like, why did your organization go broke? And they'd hand them the mic. And the general hypothesis was it was always external, uh, you know, tariffs, uh, government, uh, conflict, uh, whatever. It was always external. And unsurprisingly, the research showed that overwhelmingly majority of the reasons why organizations did hit the skids were controllable. And that goes back to the point I was making earlier about it's what I believe about myself and my environment that is often the thing that will bring an organization to its knees. And then when you throw a crisis on top, it's too late. It's either you know, poor financial management or bad decisions about the portfolio or going into somewhere where you should never have been. You've drifted too far away from the core business into an adjacency or whatever. They're controllable. They were controllable decisions that you have made and now you've gone too far down the road and now it's off with your head. So it's coming back to I think one of the things I'm starting to kind of land on here is in relation to adapting to the uncontrollable, you have to be ambidextrous. You have to be flexible 
continuously when things are controllable and they are not controllable because it's a muscle to both of your points in relation to evolution and, you know, kind of, you know, moving the arms and legs and all these things. Mm -hmm. It's a muscle that must be flexed, which is adaptation. You know, wow, isn't this insightful? Adaptation is how you adapt to the uncontrollable. It's a bit of a cop-out, but it's a consistent practice of what it means to be adaptive. Hmm. And in my world, risk mitigation, scenario planning, leadership succession planning, like you know, all the big disciplines that come in towards the longer term. I'm a strategist. I have a natural bias for better and worse towards the long term. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's very easy, but it's also easy for me to say, you know, my house isn't on fire. Yeah. But I also know that the day the house catches on fire, I have a fire extinguisher over there. I have smoke detectors there and I'm three blocks from the fire department because they're decisions I made when I bought. And that's where I'm going. It's this foresight, self-awareness, known, unknown sort of quadrant thinking that can set yourself up. Not just in, it's, you know, this isn't a conversation just for this point in history where it's something that leaders really need to bake in and proactively engage with, not just park it when it's not important and then bring it out when everyone's panicking and realizing it's too late. No, I'd agree. And it, for me, it, it feels... You know, we look at, we're talking about adaptation, we're talking about evolution and the, the saying survival of the fittest, really. And very often, I think in business, we look at, as we've said, you know, you've got an organization that is the biggest, that is the best shoemaker in the world for a period of time. Maybe it's 10 years. And they are the fittest shoemaker for that decade. But actually, it's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of those that can adapt the best to the next change. So, yes, you may not have the short-term ability to deliver, I don't know, 10x returns to your shareholders. You may be only delivering 8x during that period. But what you are doing is you're building the ability to survive and to continue to do that. And so it is very much to your point, Adam, of long-termism where I think we those organizations that are that appear to be doing better right now and we're still very early in this response and the the waves going through this crisis and we will see how how adaptations happen going forward but a lot of the organizations that we've already seen disappearing are those that were already in trouble before the crisis the already high street retailers that had big overheads of shops didn't really have the profit margins that they should have done and didn't have the online capabilities or the presence online that they could easily shift from being um, an in-person store to being a digital store to, to take account of this current scenario. So they did get hit by, hit by the meteor. Um, but as you, as you then move, as you then move forward, what we're going to find is which can then adapt to whatever happens next. So is it going to be those that can uh, that can build, uh, maybe it's uh, online, offline experiences. Maybe it's something that allows people to to socially distance. Maybe it's those those restaurants that can, you know, all of a sudden adapt to being uh, more takeout based than eat in that can deliver a home dining experience. Maybe I don't know what it is, but. All of a sudden, you're starting to see, well, what can we do with what we've got? Innovate based on a set of, 
you know, let's not say, you know, we're not talking about completely reinventing what an organization does, but how it delivers the things that it needs to consider. Those are, I think those are absolutely where people, where we'll see some fascinating changes. I just think, I, I love what you're saying that, you know, we are, there's all sorts of possibilities for people who are willing to innovate. And what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, Matt, is each innovation starts inside me, in my imagination. And I'm going to make a, a claim here that in order to adapt to the uncontrollable, what we need to, to do is to make our beliefs more flexible. Because, Adam, you were talking about beliefs, about you know the beliefs that are going on. And I think both of you are speaking to you know, organizations, corporations over the last few decades that are still in business. It's those that I would argue that are most flexible about what they believe they're doing, why they're here, and they're not attached to being the best shoemaker of the world. They're attached to doing something maybe differently, maybe to learning and to actually open up. They are psychologically flexible. The ones that are not psychologically flexible are the ones that are more and more becoming the digital dinosaurs as opposed to the digital innovators and mammoths that you, Matt, were talking about at the beginning. How do we do this? We, I, again, I'm backtracking, you guys. I'm holding you back a little bit. Mm. Before we're talking about what the options are that organizations can do, for example, social distancing, uh, new innovation... Let's talk about how rigid are people's beliefs about the situation and how do you open up your belief system? Because the best definition of mindfulness in organizations that I've read recently is my beliefs about how able I am flexible in my mind about what I see in front of me. My beliefs about my metacognition, how, how, am I, how able I am to see a different perspective of what is real right now. And the how-to of that is to be fascinated, to pay attention without judgment. Like, and, and the word fascination, I think, is a really important word here because it is a little bit like the facets of a diamond. So mm. if I am fascinated by these facets of this diamond that I'm looking at, I'm, I'm so attracted to the detail without judging it. I'm, I'm delighted to see different facets without saying this facet is better than that facet and that's the how to to opening up the rigidity of I'm in the shoe business I am in the information business I am I need to get payroll sorted in the next two days Adam mm -hmm. when I'm allowing myself to be fascinated by what is do you know what I'm doing I'm toning down the fear base in my decision-making mm -hmm. and I'm toning up the creativity and then putting together new ideas, new aspects of what's, what's mm -hmm. going on. But I can't be fascinated. I can't be paying attention without judgment if I'm in this mindset of I must, I mm -hmm. am, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I need to. Yeah. Yeah. This, my my mind is now kind of kicking the ball forward. Yeah, let's move. The value of adaptability. Organizations, particularly those who are listed and with investors and you know AGMs and quarterly reports and analysts and all the fun stuff, 
they are valued on what they're valued on, you know, operational excellence, uh, you know, earnings per share, blah, 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 all the fun stuff. However, at least I have not seen, you know, society markets really start to wrap their heads around how do you bake in value around an organization that is highly adaptable? Mm, And you alluded to this, Matt, a little bit, which Mm. is like, well, if it's not, valued then what's the motivator for organizations to do it oh but you won't go bust when you know when things go bad yeah but that's not going to help me when i'm not going bust and things aren't bad so there's no motivator for me to do this Mm. and this is where it's you know being self-aware enough of what we can control not being married to your point you to who we are at this point in time, like really understanding that an organization's existence is not a state of permanence. Mm. There's something there to be. Mm. And for a leader to say that that's pretty strong, but again, they're the leaders who aren't leading with operational excellence, lean six Sigma, all that stuff. They're leading with, you know, ambition. They're leading with purpose. They're leading with, you know, making the world a better place or not, but you know, they're leading with much bigger, more conceptual higher level abstraction things that people can then buy into and start to get behind. Now, if there's controllable elements that are leading into that, then you're going to get the inertia of the organization behind you and it's going to push you up Mm -hmm. or you're going to push the organization up. If you're really doing it right as a leader, Mm. you know, it's you're, you're pushing, you're pushing up your staff. The second point is this, and it kind of complements, which is the attraction without judgment, this fascination mm-hmm. point. I don't think, you know, this is just a little bit of a observation. I don't think the concept of fascination really exists too much, particularly within corporate leadership. It, it's just a bit of a vacuum. Like you're not paid to be fascinated. You're paid to do X. And this point, along with the, value of adaptability put those two together then you have something quite special you have an organization that understands the controllable and is not married to the current state of permanence plus you have a leader who or you know leaders in the organization who have this fascination this natural curiosity without judgment to evolve we don't need to wait for the meteor to hit the hit the planet so we can become what was the term digital mammals. Like we're going to become a digital mammal, you know, meteor or not. They're the winners. They're the ones who, when stuff does happen and crisis does come, they're much more like, oh yeah, this is you know standard crisis conditions. And again, it comes back to some really good strategic principles of testing your own assumptions understanding optionality in the face of ambiguity. What is our relationship with uncertainty and and a lack of control? You know, do we freeze up? Do we just become, I must, I do, I am? And if that is not conducive, even if it might be conducive to the stabilization, the staff are in the corner panicking because they're like, what the hell's going on? You know, do I have a job on Monday? And I know people who are having those conversations now. And you look at the leaders and they're all, I must, I do, I am. So there's this, there's this mandate here for, Yuta, to your point, this centering of leadership, going, we are all just people. 
um, you know, what, what's the saying? You know, people won't remember you for what, what you, you do. Say. They'll remember you, you for you. how you make them feel. Oh, yeah. And it's, 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 it's this my piece. Angela. Yeah. yeah. My Angela. Yeah. And it's, there, there is a case here for leaders to really step back and kind of reassess how to actually move this forward. Let's make it practical. Okay. So what we're saying, I think all, all three of us agree, right? When you need to adapt to the uncontrollable, you need to make space. Make space for yourself, right? Make space to look what's in front of you. Make space for other people's voices to be heard. Because there's something about respect as well in organizations when it's an uncontrollable situation. And to your point, Adam, of children understanding a national crisis, having the respect to listen to the child perspective on how they read the news is an act of respect it's an act of love and it's also an act of information gathering right because if you don't understand what's going on for i use this as a child but it's also Mm. the people in our care in organizations if i don't show respect for the stories that my employees bring to the uncontrollable crisis i'm not respectful and i'm also sure as hell not able to learn anything But there's something practical about making space that whenever I teach executives at at Cranfield, um, when they say, how am I able to make space? I teach them to have the habit of saying, how interesting. And I have a dear colleague at Cranfield, Paula Broadbent. She's fantastic. She's upped it a notch. She says, "Don't, don't just say how interesting because you're making space for yourself to think, right? When somebody brings something to you that you don't really know how to respond to, you make space by saying, how interesting. Paula Broadburn says, you should say, how fascinating. And I agree with her. And so uh, you guys all know uh, Cranfield CM, CM, uh, DC Centre. We have these executives walking through the lunchtime hours saying, how fascinating. And how fascinating that we now have these little lunchtime pods that look like a bistro. But it's a bit of a joke. But it is also to shift the mode of information processing from a intellectual must-find-solution mode to a mode of delight. And there's a bit about opening up the whole body mm. by saying, how fascinating, because it removes the judgment. It removes the I must bit. So we can do this practically. We could just mm. see if we could train ourselves when we're next having an impulse to go, <gasps> we could say, how fascinating. That, that really brings me to, to something from, um, that I remember from a John Cleese video on creativity. And he says there's two modes of creativity. And the first one is, is it play. And you can't really play with something unless you're fascinated with it. You can't really play unless you're trusting the others that you're playing with. You can't really play unless you've already given yourself space to play. And for me, play is to explore. Uh, it's certainly in a business you know, context. It's about exploration. And it's maybe about seeing the problem for what it really is. So meeting payroll on Friday may not be about meeting payroll on Friday. It might actually be about making sure there's enough money in the bank to meet payroll on Friday. I know that that's the same thing. It's the same end result. But what is it? Does it actually, if we can see the problems for what they are and we can play, sit a little while playing with the problem, 
we're going to be able to be creative maybe with the way that we uh, approach that challenge and can then maybe find a solution to that rather than just being overburdened by the very immediacy of the problem. Mm. So I think mm. that that's the first thing. But play on its own gets you nowhere. Play just gets you some fun. It gets you some Lego bricks. It gets you whatever. You also have to have a have a moment where you then move into the operationalization of those things, and I think that's where processes like StageGate processes, you know, any innovation process has to have elements where you're uh, times when you play and times when you're serious and you're experimenting and you're implementing, and you move between the, those two um, backwards and forwards as you as you go towards a solution. And I think that that for me that's really something that plays into stuff that you've both said you've got to listen you know if somebody's not gonna if you're not gonna listen to somebody how can how are they gonna play with you how are they gonna be able to 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 sit around the table if you're not gonna give them time and space and you're not gonna listen adam you've got that look as if as as if to say there's something really big weighing on your mind no 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 no. (laughs) i've just had a little bit of a penny drop when 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 i tie start to tie this conversation together one of the main characteristics or one of the main kind of objectives I think we're trying to move leaders towards is to become less stressed. Mm, yes, because in a stress, yeah, it, 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 it's an obvious one. Duh. It's, <laughs> Sorry. But, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but, but I'm in the minority. I know that I'm in the minority to say yeah. leaders that are stressed are not effective. That still hasn't made it into mainstream, right? Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Because there is, the, and particularly in the Western world, where, you know, a, cool. an executive walking like, into a room <gasps> with veins popping out of their neck because their tie's on that hard and not cracking a smile and barking out the orders is considered strong, is considered leadership. It's considered sexy. And that is starting to change in the last 10, 20 years. Mm. But it's still the predominant kind of overarching image now behind closed doors at least with a you know i've spent my fair time in boardrooms mm-hmm. it's starting to change they're starting to soften up but if there's anyone else outside of the trusted group yeah. like it's it's you know the pinstripe soup kind of ideology is still alive and well so they see anything other than that as a sign of weakness and they see stress as a badge of honor i don't mean stress as in like traditional stress mm-hmm. i mean stress as in I'm taking this so seriously that it's the seriousness is making the veins in my neck pop. I was having a conversation only this morning with a good friend of mine who works for a large organization in India. And she was saying, this organization is so combative. Everyone here, yeah, it, it's an aggressive culture and aggression gets results. And I am very passive. I'm a people person. I treat people with caring, compassion and if I don't step up, I'm just being steamrolled and it's seen as a sign of weakness because the culture is that against it. And it's that phenomena that needs to change. And it's everything that we're discussing here. It's the fascination. It's, uh, you know, um, the, the attraction without judgment. It's the, the self-evolution and that innovative mindset not being married to who we are at this point, understanding that our current position is not a state of permanence, understanding that organizations come and go, and the smart ones evolve. And that's the thread I'm pulling. But ultimately, it comes up to what's driving that whack behavior that my friend in India is experiencing. Mm-hmm. It's stress. Yeah. And, and the I- stress becomes the norm. And Adam, 
I absolutely love this example that you're giving here to, to illustrate that it's the norm. And we have to hold this reality today, today's leadership's challenge quite with quite a lot of respect, actually, that aggression does get result. And aggression, even though it looks in it is now casual clothing, it's no longer in pinstripe suits, but high power decision makers still um, it is the norm that the more aggressive you are, the quicker you respond, the more you are seen to get result. And that is incredibly intense. I loved what Matt said as a way to almost motivate people who are sitting in the culture and in the consensus that is still real, even though we don't agree with it in our cushy little conversation right now mm. that this is not how it should be. Um, we could argue that leaders can't afford not to listen to the different voices because they don't they no longer have the ability to actually understand the complexity of what these uncontrollable situations today are about so it's not an act of weakness and it's not an act of femininity in organization to become this caring listening CEO, but it is an imperative to ask questions. Matt, your question was a really fantastic practical instructions for people to take away. You said, what does actually making payroll on Friday really mean? It actually means having continuity of what this organization is, is about. It might be about um, um, treating people according to the procedures that we've rolled out or being more flexible. It mm. might mean giving people something else when we can't make payroll. You know, what is it what, that quid pro we can do? If we ask that question, what does making payroll on Friday really mean? We're getting to all the unspoken premises, inferences, assumptions, conclusions that people make anyway and that might get us to be innovative and to be more flexible in our mindset if we are listening it. We don't have to be soft to do that. We can be aggressively listening. We can be aggressive decision makers. But we can't afford not to ask questions about the meaning of what we think is uncontrollable. And then, we, and then we've got, at least I, I, would, I would bet my mortgage, we would then learn at least one new piece of information that we haven't seen before, which allows us to make the uncontrollable actually controllable. Yep, 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 you're bang on. You're absolutely bang on. Do you think on. my mortgage is safe? Yeah, you're in, you're in, you're good. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Re re repossession will not be visiting you today. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Final thoughts, Matt. This is fascinating. Um, well, for me, it, it still, it really comes back to, you know, if we look at, you know, if we look at the uh, the meteor that's hit the world right now, um, you know, we've spoken a lot about being mindful, but a lot of the challenges that people are facing, uh, a lot of the organisations that that are that are really struggling right now or have really struggled and, and we've already seen disappear, uh, they were ones that weren't already mindful of the challenges that they were facing. Potentially, they hadn't already evolved and adapted. Mm. Uh, as I as I then look at you know, the things that, that that the two of you have mentioned, I think that being fearful of listening and sitting with other people's problems, other people's perceptions really brings a richness um, and a level of trust to all of this. And if we look at what 
you know, as you said, Adam, what, what are the things that, what, what is it that people remember us for? It's not what we do, it's how we make them feel. So if we make them feel listened to, if we make them feel loved as part of that conversation, it doesn't really matter if the organisation itself fails. As long as the organisation fails in a way that stays true to its core values of respecting the people. And if you can do that and you can say, hey, look, we just can't, this, this business is no longer viable, but we're going to do, we're going to wrap this up in a way that, um, that treats you all with the respect that you deserve as human beings, as colleagues and everything else. I think that's one thing, you know, I think that's a, you know, I think that's a valid exit from a, a, a crisis. The other one that of course we all would much prefer is that we can evolve, that we adapt and that we continue by managing to, to bend a little bit. You know, if you look at, you know, whenever a storm comes, it's not the willow trees that bend that fall over. It's the big oak trees that grew too big that were too rigid. And I think that's the that's the real lesson for me is that 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 ability to to flex, to to stretch and move in your chair. Um, those twist. are the things that to twist in your chair, as you said earlier before we started. Um, those are the things that I think are really really important. Mm. Matt, I'd like to pick up on that because when Adam was speaking earlier about organisations that might actually that have an expiration, the expiry date has come, right? Um, I actually think we could see this from the other side. And I'm thinking of Maslow and hierarchy of needs, because actually it could be the biggest opportunity for people to learn and to grow, um, to walk through an exit of something that is no longer fit for purpose and actually to open up avenues to do something different. Because you both are with me in the best consultants are the ones that consult themselves out of a job because they're not hanging on to being of use to the client forever. They are um, confident and grounded enough to say, this is what I contribute. I don't actually want to be here forever permanent because I know that everything always changes, as Ellen Langer says, and I'm actually able to grow and do something bigger, better, new, more interesting by not being permanently attached to this status quo. So could we imagine organizations that realize that maybe the current form, maybe even the organization itself is no longer appropriate, but we actually are setting people free to be able to do new, innovative, maybe more satisfying things than what we're doing currently. And if we get that mindset into everybody as the consensus, as the culture of the way we do things around here, then even an exit strategy isn't scary. It's actually an opportunity. There's what, something else that I really want to take away from this, and it is um, what Matt's talked about. First, we need to develop a survivor mindset, and then we need to develop an innovation mindset. I think organizations and leaders will ignore it at their peril to be skimpy on the focus on surviving and being grounded and to feel calm in that situation and rush to the innovation mindset because it cannot be rushed unless I really feel safe and grounded and calm none of the innovations are coming from the right spot and I think your sequence that you've taught us here is a really important sequence sequence for leaders to take away mm, nice this is a winner this has been time well spent 
strategy behind adapting to the uncontrollable. And as always, there will be more. <laughs> All you got to do is click on the next button and I'm sure we will be there. Before resetting. <laughs> yes, yes, before resetting. Lovely. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr. Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>